Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you uh, again. Uh, it's good to be back. You know, this last week, I was guess about a week ago, Friday, it's like nine days ago, I had surgery. Um, and many were praying for me. Thank you. It's great to be uh, back, and I appreciate all those uh, prayers. Uh, it also opened the door for Tim to be here last week, and he did a great job. And uh, so we were just thankful to have him to be able to, uh, to teach last weekend, did a great job. But before we go into our time of teaching, we're kicking off a new series today. Before we go into the time of teaching, I have a couple announcements too. We had so many today. Just want to break them up. Uh, first one, that Tanzania trip. Isn't that amazing what God is doing there? And I just want to encourage you, as, as it said, uh, that we're going again in February and in this, in this summer. And uh, if you feel like God's stirring in you at all uh, to go, I, if he is, chances are it might be a little nerve-wracking. You know, it's like uh, a little nervous. But uh, I think what God's doing there is amazing. And uh, I think as we stand in eternity and look back at what God did in this era at Rocky Peak, it would be one of the most significant things that we've done, taking the gospel to an area where it's never gone before. And, uh, and so, you know, God may be calling you to be a part of that. And so if you sense any of that, I just want to encourage you to be listening, exploring that. God is up from you. A uh, couple of things are happening this week, though. Don't forget the next, uh, next weekend, we're doing our coat drive. So this is a one weekend coat drive, winter coat drive for the homeless. Um, and we just want to kind of fill up uh, a lot of trucks with those winter coats, uh, all different kinds. You've got the brochure, the little handout uh, here in your, um, in your program. Uh, we'll send you an email this week to remind you, um, but we're just doing it one, one weekend. So it's just uh, one weekend only next week. And then also, uh, we've been pushing a lot this Zoe Worship Night. You know, we love Zoe, uh, great ministry that are rescuing kids from sex trafficking around the world. Dave and Christy Cox now are, are with them. And uh, we're very excited about that. Two weeks ago, we were going to have a worship night here on a Friday night, but due to the fires, we had to cancel. So we're doing that this Friday night. So we've got all the information on this card here, but it should be a great night. I want to invite you out to that. But we are kicking off a new series. And so if you're new here at Rocky Peak, I want to welcome you. But also, uh, let you know, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that we use every week. And so if you're new, you may not know that, but I want to encourage you to take that out. And if you are ready to go, I'm ready to launch a new series. You ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place, underneath your leadership, under the leadership of your Holy Spirit, who leads and guides and empowers and transforms our life as we listen and follow and Lord, we, we just have a sense that every time there's a new series, we, we know it's something that's coming from you. And we just watched over the years as you take us as a church, you shepherd and disciple us from one series to the next. And so as we build on what we learned last time about transformation and metamorphosis, God, as we go into the Old Testament to see these amazing life principles of what it takes to grow, we pray that you would just be with us in a powerful way. We ask your spirit to be here. I pray for strength and energy. I pray my voice to be clear, mind clear. I pray that all of us, we gathered around your word, hungry to learn and grow. And then as always, we would simply listen and then follow. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, our story starts early in the morning. And uh, he's in his tent. He's just waking up. He's in the south of the country. And he's, he's come here to lead a military invasion. He's here to start a war. And uh, he's received orders from headquarters um, a few weeks ago that he was to launch this attack on a foreign enemy. And so he's gathered here at the south of the nation, and he's gathered the army, 
And she gets up, it's, it's very early in the morning, the stars are still out, the moon's out, and so she gets dressed and goes to the front of his tent and looks out in the shadows and in the, the highlights of that, that night light uh, sky. He looks over the vast troops. Over 200,000 of his men have gathered. The last couple of weeks, he's been meeting with his generals, the top commanders. They've been devising strategies, debating uh, 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 approaches. They finally come up with a plan. And today is the day. Today is D-Day. He's waiting for the sun to come up. And they'll begin to man their stations to get ready to launch the attack. And later in the day, when all the army is in place, all the commanders are ready, the, the alert will sound. He will give the word, and they will go to attack the city. And as the ambush begins, it is going exactly according to plan. He, he, he looks over the troop, getting the reports in. Everything is unfolding exactly like they planned it. The enemy is on the run. There's a, there's a route It looks like it's going to be a total success. And then it happens. He makes a decision. It's a command decision. It's a fatal decision. It's going to lead to the loss of his army, the loss of his command. And it all happens in the flash of a moment. Well, today we are kicking off this brand new series that I'm calling Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Nation of Israel. And I'm very excited about it. It's been a while since we have launched into a a major series in the Old Testament. But the reality is, as followers of Jesus, it's impossible to understand our story. It's impossible to understand the big picture story the Bible is telling. It's impossible to understand the story of our race apart from understanding the early epic chapters that God is writing in this larger story that focus on the nation of Israel. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be focusing on what I'm calling the kingdom era. And you say, well, what's a kingdom era? The kingdom era launches with the start, the rise of, of the first king. His name is King Saul. And it's going to last for over four centuries. So it's going to start a little before the year 1000 BC, about 1,000 years before Jesus. It's going to last for four centuries, a little over 400 years, to the year 586 or 587 with the final uh, siege and then destruction of the capital city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to be looking at in this uh, this series uh, for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be focusing on, on 10 key turning points in this series We're going to be focusing on the lives of some key leaders of Israel, prophets, priests, and kings. And the reason we're going to be looking at these key turning points in the lives of these leaders is is not only to understand and better understand the story of Israel, and not only to understand the big picture story the Bible is telling, but also to highlight some critical spiritual principles for our lives as followers of Jesus today, what it takes to grow, to thrive, and experience transformation, like we talked about in our last series, uh, as we follow him today. And today we're going to kick off with uh, the first king that we're going to be looking at in this series, and his name is King Saul. He's the very first king of Israel. Um, and so, but in, before we jump into his, his story, kind of the rise and fall of King Saul, uh, we need to set the stage with some background for this whole series on the rise of the kingdom. And so there in your note sheet, 
you have a section called The Rise of the Kingdom, The Backstory. And we're going to spend a few minutes on this. And so um, if we're going to understand the rise of this kingdom era, this starts about the year 1000, around in there. Uh, but we have to go back in time to the time of Moses and Joshua. So if you remember back, uh, when God rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt, uh, out of slavery, and uh, he leads them through Moses to the desert, the, one of the first things they do is about three months in, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And when they arrive at Mount Sinai, God shows up in an amazing display of power and reveals himself, speaks to the nation, and he invites them invites him into a very deep and personal relationship. He invites them into what we call the covenant, uh, a formal relationship much like marriage. He would be their God. They would be his people. And they said, yes, I do. And so they enter into this relationship, and our story begins. And right away, they begin to disobey. And so as a result of that disobedience, they're going to spend the next 40 years wandering in the desert, of, of, uh, uh, the desert out of Egypt and before uh, Israel. And, uh, and so after the 40 years, they're going to go into the promised land under a major new leader uh, named Joshua. And as they go into the promised land, God gives them very specific instructions. Now, I want to spend a couple minutes here because these are very controversial instructions, and it's important for us to understand them, and they're going to play an important part in our story today when we get to King Saul. And so when God, uh, led them, when, when God sent them into the promised land, he said, hey, here are the rules of engagement. When you go into the promised land, inside the boundaries of the nation that I've drawn, that I want you to completely wipe out the inhabitants. He said, now, now, for people outside of those boundaries, you can conquer them, you can enter into peace treaties, but for people inside these boundaries, complete destruction. And of course, it raises the question, why? And the Bible gives a couple answers for that. The first answer is that God was going to use Israel as his tool of judgment on a very fallen culture, the culture of Canaan. So as you know this, that throughout the Bible, God raises up and tears down nations, and he often uses one nation to bring judgment on another. For example, later on in their history, God will use the nation of Babylon and Assyria to conquer Israel, to, uh, to, to judge them. And so in a similar way, we're told that, that the, the, the culture of Canaan had gone to such a low point, it had become so despicable, it was time for judgment. So it's just kind of one sign of that. In Canaan, when you would worship, one of your acts of worship would be to burn your babies in the fire as an offering to God. So, so God said, hey, their time is up. In fact, back in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham, oh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before that, he, before, before Israel even went into Egypt for 400 years, he said, your, your descendants are going to go into Egypt for 400 years. But he said, I'm going to bring them out into the land of Canaan. But he says, not time because the sin of the Amorites, in other words, the sin of Canaan has not full yet. It wasn't time for their judgment. So the first reason, when you think of this, God, God used the flood to judge the world, right? He used uh, fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. At the end of time, Jesus is going to bring judgment on all creation. And so at this point in history, God is going to use Israel as a tool of his judgment on the sin of the land. So that's re re uh, reason number one. The second reason is, is that God says, this is extremely important. You listen and follow what I'm telling you because if you don't drive out these pagan nations, you will intermarry with them. You will begin to worship their gods and I will have to bring judgment on you like I'm bringing on them. 
So when they go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, they listen and follow during his lifetime. They drive out the other nations, not all of them, but they drive them out. They follow Yahweh. They don't worship other gods. But after Joshua dies, in the next generation that hadn't seen the Lord's uh, miraculous work, the splitting of the Jordan River and so on, and that next generation, they begin to compromise. They begin to marry non-believers. They begin to marry into these pagan tribes, form relationships, and as a result, they begin to worship other gods. And this brings the judgment of God on Israel. And so we begin to enter into an era of time that we know as the era of the judges, all right? Now, so you think judges, think uh, Barak, Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, Deborah, these kind. No, so when you think judges, don't think Judge Judy, right? <laughs> these, these are not like courtroom. These are like military leaders that God would raise up to rescue the nation. So in the era of the judges, there was this horrible cycle. It was a cycle of sin and then judgment and then rescue and then sin and then judgment and then rescue. So what would happen is the people would intermarry, worship other gods. God would allow them to be conquered by their, their enemies. Horrible time of oppression. Eventually they call out to God, we're so sorry, we repent. God would raise up a judge to deliver them. They would be, follow Yahweh a while, then they'd start worshiping other gods, and then more judgment would come, and we'd go back through. And this went on for hundreds of years. So after, at the end of the era of the judges, it takes us to about the year 1000 BC, a little before then. And at this point in time, Israel is facing a new extreme crisis. Now catch this, this is very important. In the era of the judges, the 12 tribes had come in, settled in their own areas, but there had not been a unified government. There were 12 disparate tribes, like a loosely confederation of tribes. And so there was no centralized government. There was no king. And so shortly before 1000 BC, uh, there's a new people that invades the land. Some of you have heard of them. They were called the Philistines. How many have heard of that? You've heard of that? Yeah, like uh, Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines were a seafaring country. Historians believe probably came from the island of Crete. They sail in and to the they take over the coastal plains of Israel by the Mediterranean, set up five major cities. But over time, uh, they begin to invade the inland and take over Israel. And one of the advantages they had, they had discovered the technology of iron. So they had iron weapons as opposed to bronze weapons, much stronger, gave them a huge technological advantage. So it was a huge crisis for the nation of Israel. And so instead of turning to God as their salvation, they turned to a man. And they went to the prophet Samuel, and they said, hey, listen, we need a king. We need a king to unify our nation and make us a nation, not just tribes. We, we need a king to unify us and to lead us into battle. And Samuel says, listen, you don't want a king. Kings are going to raise your taxes. Kings are going to draft your sons. Kings are going to steal your property. You don't want a king. And they said, no, we want a king. And so finally God said, hey, just listen to them. They're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And just give them their king. And so God raises up a man named uh, Saul, King Saul. Now, Saul was good-looking, tall guy. He fit the part. He would be casted, you know, Hollywood would cast him. He is tall. He's tall. He's got great-looking hair, you know. Um, 
He's got, I don't know what product he's advertising, but he's just really, he's, he's not in all the, you know, so, but Saul has a low self-image. Uh, he is from a small and weak tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And so when Samuel comes and says, you're the guy, he doesn't want the job. But he says, no, God will be with you. And so eventually he accepts the role. And sure enough, the next time there's a major military attack, that the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and empowers him, and he summons the nation, leads him in a major military victory, and from that point on, it's trending up. From, from victory to victory, uh, people are loving this, we've got our king, God is with us, we're winning, and for the first time, the nation is strong. And for the first time, says, you know, Joshua is, is strong, it's growing in strength, and he's leading them in victory. And this goes on for several years. But what happens is after several years, these victories start going to Saul's head. And so he stops listening and following, and it starts getting him into trouble. And that leads us to the story we started the day with. We started the day with this commander in the south of Israel, in the, in the Negev. For those of you who've been to Israel, think wilderness of Zin, and, you know, very dry, barren desert. He is down there, and he has received orders from Samuel the prophet that he is to go to war against this ancient enemy called the Amalekites. We'll learn about them soon. And, uh, and so as he's getting up that morning, right, he's been preparing for this, I'm sure, for weeks, got the battle plan in place. He gets up that morning, he's looking over his, his army, 210,000 men, and they're about to go to war. It's D-Day. And so he gives the orders, they go to war, they attack the city of Amalek. Uh, everything is going exactly according to plan when all of a sudden he makes the worst mistake of his life that's gonna end, uh, lead to the loss of his kingdom. All right, so that's the stage. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's open up. First Samuel chapter 15. If you've never heard of it, it's in the Old Testament. You've got a table of contents there. Encourage you to use that. It's why God put it there. And so we're reading a lot of scripture. In this series, every week, it's been a lot of scripture. So uh, 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel uh, sends to Saul. So Samuel's the prophet. Saul's the king. He says, I'm the one that the Lord sent. Now, uh, for those of you who are new at Rocky Peak, you may not know this, but whenever we see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament, what does that mean? Yeah, it means Yahweh. It's the way the translators are telling you. In the Hebrew, this is the Hebrew personal name for God, Yahweh. And so he says, uh, he says, I'm the one that Yahweh sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord, from Yahweh. Now, it's an interesting way to start a conversation. He says, hey, I want you to remember who I am, who you are, and how you got to be where you are. Uh, in the previous chapter, Saul has disobeyed the word of the Lord via Samuel and Samuel, you get the sense, is doesn't want a repeat performance. This is what he's about to tell Saul is very important. And so he says, I want you to remember who I am. I'm the guy that anointed you king all those years ago. And the Lord is the one who's raised you in power. And so I am now, remember, speaking for Yahweh. I don't want you to blow this. Let's be clear on what's about to happen. He says, so this is what the Lord Almighty says that I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So what's he talking about? 
Let's go back in time, hundreds of years, to Exodus 17. The nation of Israel has just come out of slavery in Egypt. They haven't even made it to Mount Sinai, which happens three months in. They're a ragtag group, two or three million people of slaves, right? They're, they don't know what they're doing. They're very vulnerable to attack. And there is a, a desert people called the Amalekites. They ride camels and everything. You know, it's like the Arabian Nights. And uh, they see this as an opportunity to attack this vulnerable people. And so they attack them from the rear uh, to try to wipe them out and steal their stuff. And so they have, Israel has to go into battle. They don't want to go into battle. They're vulnerable, but they have to go into battle. And God is going to give them a supernatural victory. And in fact, some of you will remember the story. You remember the story when Moses was on the mountain and he had to have Aaron and her holding his hands up? As long as he held his hands up, they would win. That's this story. So God gives them a victory, but afterwards God says, that's it, I'm done with the Amalekites. We're going to take them out. When you get in the promised land, we're going to take them out. We're going to bring judgment on this wicked people. But the problem is, is that when they get in the promised land, after the time of Joshua, they're not strong enough to take anyone out. In fact, over the last couple hundred years, the Amalekites have been one of their big enemies. The Amalekites are a desert people. They would wait till harvest time in Israel, and then they would invade their camels like a horde, like, like locusts, and they would just steal all their stuff, kill Israelites, and it was so, the Israelites were so weak, they'd be hiding in caves. Remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament? That's what the Amalekites are, one of the invading territories. And so there's, it's been hundreds of years, but they've never carried out this instruction for the Lord to wipe out the uh, Amalekites. So... Uh, the word comes, we're going to, uh, now that you're in power, now that we have a king, now there's centralized government, we're going to take care of that. And so he says in verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I'll punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them, they came out of Egypt. Now, so here's his instructions, very clear. Uh, remember when we talked about this, when you go in the promised land, I want you to completely destroy people and for these two reasons. There was actually a technical term for that. And in Hebrew, the term is haram, like H and a R and an M, haram. And it means to kind of irrevocably, like devote something to the Lord. Like remember, their first battle was in Jericho. And you may remember this when they win the promised land. Hey, do not take anything from Jericho, no plunder. It all belongs to the Lord. That's haram. And so what the Lord is telling uh, uh, Saul to do is this is haram. In fact, as you go on, he says in verse 3, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Now look at your Bibles. If you have a new international version, do you see a little bit of a letter after the word destroy? Do you see that? That's a footnote, right? Now, depending on your version, some of you have A's, some C's, or whatever. But if you look down at the bottom of the page, it will explain, it'll, it'll explain that footnote. We'll see the number 3 down there for verse 3. And it says, this Hebrew term, and the term is haram, like I just told you, it refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to Yahweh, often by totally destroying them. And he says, this word is also used in verses 8 and 9 and 15 and 18 and 20 and 21. Let me ask you, how many times is that? Uh, yes. Yes. It is seven times. This number three plus six more, right? That's seven times. This is not an accident. 
The author is signaling us this story is about Haram and about obedience to Haram. And so he, the instructions are super clear. The prophets called me, said, hey, remember who I am? Remember who you are? Remember how you got it? I've got special instructions. Don't miss them. It's Haram. Super clear. So Saul begins to summon the men and muster them at Taline in the south. 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Saul went into the city of Amalek, apparently the stronghold, and he sets an ambush on the ravine. And so the attack starts, and it's going great. In verse 7, Saul attacks the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. Not really sure where Shur is, but notice it's near the eastern border of Egypt. All right. It's a true story. Verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Just don't miss that. He takes the king, what? What is Haram? Destroy. And all his people, he totally destroyed with the sword. So he did most of what he was supposed to do there. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle. Hmm. The fat calves, not the grass-fed calves, the fat calves and the lambs, and everything that was good. Hmm. So these, these, they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So the word of Yahweh comes to Samuel. Now remember, Samuel is not at the battlefront. I want you to picture, step back in time, at least weeks before, maybe months before. This is going to take a while. Like there's no, uh, there's no you know, Amtrak. There's no uh, flights. You're going to have to gather these 200,000 warriors from all over Israel. It's going to take time, get the logistics, the food, all this stuff. And so it was weeks before, at least, that Samuel met with Saul and gave him the orders. Uh, Saul has gone south. He's in Talim to start this attack. Uh, the attack happens at Amalek. Samuel's not there. He's not at the battlefront. He's far away. Um, and remember, this is a day there is no social media. Uh, there's no CNN. There's no, hey, we're here at Amalek, you know, reporting live. Um, yeah, there's nothing like that. Um, there's no cell phones. There's no texting. Um, and so Samuel's a long way away from the battle. He doesn't even know the battle has happened yet. But that night, in the middle of the night, we'll see in a minute, that God wakes him up and he says, I have a message. We need to talk about Saul. And he says, so the word of the Lord came to Samuel in verse 10. He said, I regret that I've made Saul king. In other words, in the Hebrew, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sad. This is not working out. Because he's what? Can you underline that? This is the core issue. He's turned away from me. He's no longer like looking to me to run his life. He's kind of running his own life. And he's not carried out what? My instructions. Okay, uh, wake up. It's 11 o'clock. I expect more. Uh, so he's not carried out what? Now, I want you to catch that. We're going to come back to it. But he's not carried out. So Samuel was angry. Now, why is he angry? We don't know. He doesn't say. My, my hunch is he's angry. He's angry at Saul. 
Remember I told you this is not the first time he's been disobedient. The previous chapter, he's been major disobedient. That's why he was so clear with him. And so it's like, there's a lot at stake. You're the king of the nation. What you do affects the whole nation. Come on, wake up here, smell the roses. You're the first king of a united kingdom. This is a whole new, you're like the George Washington of our country. We don't want the first king to fail. We don't want the first king, you know, you don't, you don't want like George Washington impeached, right? No comment. <laughs> so Samuel gets up and he, uh, so he's very angry. He cries out to the Lord. He's up all night. He's just so upset about this. So early the next morning, Samuel gets up and he goes to meet Saul. Now remember, he doesn't know exactly where Saul is. And so when he goes, when he gets where he thinks he is, He's told, hey, Saul's gone to Carmel. Now, for those of you who've been in Israel, this is not Carmel in the north where King Ahab and the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah. This is a smaller Carmel in the south. And he says, he's gone to Carmel, and he catches, there he set up a monument in his own honor. And then he's turned and he's, he went to Gilgal. So he goes to Carmel. And he sets up a monument. Now, you, this is the sort of thing like you'd see in Civil War sites or something. This amazing battle took here, and I was a king, and I led this great victory. This is what kings would do. So he's disobeyed the Lord, the Lord who gave him the victory. He sets up a monument in his own honor, uh, and then he goes to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? Remember, this is before the temple is built. Gilgal was a place of sacrifice. It was one of the most famous places, high places in Israel, a place to sacrifice. So he's going to go and he's going to offer sacrifice there. And so when Samuel reaches him, uh, Saul says, I want you to catch how super spiritual he is. The Lord bless you. He calls out, Yahweh bless you. Uh, I've carried out Yahweh's instructions. You catch this? This is like, Hey, praise the Lord. God is with us. We had an amazing victory. You told me what to do. I did what you told me. God has blessed. Praise the Lord. Let's sacrifice and give thanks to God forever. Together. And uh, Samuel says, remember, he, the Lord had kind of clued him in the night before. So Samuel says to him, well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Like, if you carried out the orders, why am I hearing so many livestock? And what's this lowing of cattle that I hear? And so Saul says, I, I want you to catch this. Saul's going to begin to defend his actions. I want you to write down four key words on your note sheet right now. I'm going to come back to these again and again. These are four really important words. The first word is the word rationalization. Rationalization. Second word, justification. Third word, excuses. And the fourth word is blame. And what we're going to see as Saul begins to, as Samuel challenges Saul, begins to hold him accountable, that, that Saul is going to begin to rationalize, justify, make excuses, and blame. And he's going to start with blame. So remember, Samuel's just asked him, what's this bleeding of the sheep? Like, why are these livestock here? And Saul says, Saul answered, what's his first two words? The soldiers. Not my issue. It's not my fault. It's the soldiers. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. uh, And now here comes his justification. 
They spare the best of the sheep and saddle to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So he's going to blame, rationalize, justify. Here's excuses. And so Samuel is now like heard enough from him uh, based on what he's heard from that from the Lord. And he says, enough. He says, let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. He said, okay, what did he say? He says, well, you were once small in your own eyes. Remember there was a time you didn't even want this job when you didn't think you were up to this job? <clears throat> you were from a small tribe and you didn't think you had what it takes. You wouldn't have the support of the nation. He said, but didn't you become the head of the tribes of Israel? Like, how did that happen? He said, the Lord anointed you king. He raised you up. He put you in this position. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people that have been terrorizing us for years, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you wipe them out. So why didn't you obey Yahweh? Why did you pounce on the plunder? Notice Saul said it was the men who won the plunder. He says, no, it was you. And why did you do evil in the eyes of Yahweh? And the catch is how, how slow he is to accept the truth about what he's done. Notice this, this natural tendency to rationalize, to justify, to blame, to excuse. He's going to say the exact same thing again. He says, but I did obey Yahweh. I went on the mission Yahweh assigned to me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord. So he's just like holding on to party line. But Samuel replies, and he asks him a great question. Does Yahweh delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed or listen is better than the fat of rams that you'd offer in the sacrifice. And he says, for rebellion, what you've done, he says, what you've done is rebellion. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. And divination is uh, sort of an occult practice in a sense. It's, It's like seeking other gods or spirits to divine the future or what you should do through omens or it's, uh, you know, through uh, supernatural kind of uh, experiences. Uh, interesting, just quick sidebar here, that this is something that God was super clear with Israel. They were never to have anything to do with the occult. They were never to have anything to do with astrology or mediums or spiritists, strictly off limits. And this is so important for us today. We, we live in a world today where the rise of the occult, the popularity of astrology, these kind of things are rapidly, and as followers of Jesus, it is so important that we have nothing to do with that. From time to time, I'll see a believer on Facebook or whatever, someone claims to be a follower of Jesus or a conversation, what's your sign? Can I say, as followers of Jesus, we all share the same sign. It's the sign of the cross. And it's the only sign. And whenever we start delving into horoscopes, astrology, mediums, crystals, any of this sort of thing, we are opening ourselves up to attack from the dark side that is very real. Can I tell you something here? We have a ministry here that we 
we minister to people that are experiencing a lot of uh, spiritual attack or demonic attack in their lives. And one of the things we have them do is just to go through a spiritual inventory. What are the things that you've exposed yourself to or involved in? One of the biggest lists is a list of huge list of this a dark side occult thing. That when we open ourselves up, we're giving the enemy uh, a kind of avenue to attack us. And this is why God said completely not. And understanding that, understand how significant this is, where Samuel says, what you've done, this rebellion, it's like the sin of divination. Your arrogance, it's like the sin of idolatry. What you're doing, your rebellion, it's like worshiping or pursuing other gods, bowing down to other gods. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So this is the bottom line. And so at this point, Saul finally breaks. He finally comes clean and he says to Samuel, I have sinned. I did violate the Lord's command. You're instructed. Here's what's happened. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave it. So he finally comes clean. So what, what is he afraid of? Well, in ancient times, when you'd go to war, one of the major, major motivations for warriors going to war is plunder, that you would defeat the enemy, you get plunder. It's the way you gather wealth. And so uh, Saul was afraid that if, they, if he led his men in battle, they had all this plunder, and they didn't give it to the men and didn't divvy it up that uh, his men would revolt, there'd be a riot, he would lose control of his kingdom. And so out of that fear, that's what was really driving him in addition to his desire for the plunder himself. Um, And so he finally comes clean. This is why he disobeyed. And so from this point on, Samuel's gonna say, well, that's that's great, but you're not getting the kingdom back. It's this over, you know, God is done with you uh, being king. And from this point in his life, Saul's life is going to begin to trend downhill. In fact, in my notes, I wrote these words. From this point on, it's a dead man walking. That there is a sentence over his life. And his life, his family, his health, his mental health, his sanity, um, and eventually his kingdom is going to go downhill. And he's going to lose it about 15 years later. And when he dies, he's going to die in battle. And you know who's going to deliver the death blow? an Amalekite. And so what we want to do today is stand back from this, the story of this first, the rise and fall of the first king and look at some life principles for our lives. And this is what we're going to be doing every week in this series. We're going to delve into a major turning point, a, a, a critical story involving a prophets, priests, and kings. We're going to look at the story, set it up in context unpack the story, and then we're going to come back and say, not only how does this story fit into the larger story of the Bible, and our story, but what are the life lessons that God is giving us in his word that are critical for us to understand as followers of Jesus in our life if we're going to move forward into the future God has for us and experience the transformation we talked about in our last series. And so today, I want to highlight three lessons that flow out of the life of King Saul. So here's number one. The first lesson, and this is probably the most obvious, but the most powerful, most important, is that partial obedience, or if you prefer the word selective obedience, but partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Now, um, just to be clear, especially for those of us here who have more sensitive consciences, that when I'm talking today about partial obedience, like we all have room to grow, right? We're all works in progress. You're a work in progress. I'm a work of progress. 
Um, so when we talk about partial obedience, we all have areas of growth. What I'm talking about is that when God is clear with us in his word, right? I'll give some specific examples later. When God's clear with us in his word, when the Holy Spirit's clear with us in his word, that partial obedience is not good enough. That partial obedience is disobedience. And here's what I want you to catch. That we're going to see that as a fallen race, we not only have this natural tendency to rebel against our creator, but we have a natural tendency to offer partial obedience for real obedience. And that when we do that, we tend to think that God is okay with that. Like we, we tend to think that it kind of, it, it's almost like, like in school, like we think that God grades on a curve kind of thing. Like let's say you get a test back from school and you get an 80%. You're gonna say, oh, well, that's okay. You know, at least I got a B or a B minus or maybe it's a 70, hey, at least I pass. And we often look at it spiritually like that. Well, I didn't really do what God asked me to do, but I did 80% and that's a B. That's pretty good. But what I want you to catch is in the spiritual realm that partial obedience, when God's been clear, Partial obedience is not a B, that it's an F, <laughs> that partial obedience is disobedience. And it's interesting because when you look at Saul's story, you can understand how he could rationalize, can't you? I mean, because when you look at it, remember what he said when he, hey, I've done everything the Lord, I've, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And you know, if you say, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, when, when, when Samuel challenged him on this, what did he say? He said, I did do it. I he told me to go to war. I went to war. I gathered 210,000 men. We went to Amalek. I, I wiped them out, like you said. I, I, kept, you know, I kept Agag, but I wiped them out in general. And, and when it comes to the plunder, okay, we didn't kill all the animals, but we killed a lot of them, at least the sick ones and the infirm ones, plus we say, of the good ones, we're going to actually sacrifice some of those. So that's pretty good, right? Like, I did a lot of what I was told. I did much of what I was told. I could even argue I did most of what I was told. But I want you to see how God sees it, right? Not how Saul sees it, how, how God sees it. So look with me at 15.11. We're going to look real quick, two, two passages. 15.11. He says, Saul, uh, God says, I regret that I made Saul king because he's what? He's turned away from me. Now underline that. Saul says, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. God says, no, you turned away from me. And then he goes on, he's turned away from me and he has not what? He's not carried out my instructions. So I've carried out your instructions. He said, no, you haven't. If you go down to verse 23, he says, what you've done is rebellion. What you've done is arrogance. What you've done is rejected the word of the Lord. That partial obedience is disobedience. Okay, we're going to build on that. Number two. Number two is that rationalization comes naturally. What we're going to see today, in a sense, studying Saul's life is a study of human nature, your nature, my nature, apart from Jesus and what he's done. 
that rationalization comes easily. And so we, we, we've seen this in the passage, right? How he's so quick to rationalize, to justify, to excuse, and to blame. And what I want you to catch today, kind of big picture principle, is that for you and I as members of Adam and Eve's fallen human race, that, na- that rationalization comes easy. And we, we, we come by this naturally. And, and this, you can see this, if you go back to the very start of our story, if you go back to the start of our story as a race, the opening chapters of Genesis, we're introduced to this brilliant God who's brilliant and powerful and creative and completely good and, and loves beauty, who out of that love and, and that love and, and creativity creates this amazing world. And he calls us, creates a first man, first woman, that we could be like him in his character. We would be uh, in relationship with him. We'd rule over creation for him. And he creates this incredible garden. And I don't know if you remember what the rules of the garden were. The rules were like this. Hey, there's an amazing garden here. You can eat whatever you want. But there's one tree you can't eat from. It's a test, right? It's a test of their obedience. Will they listen and follow? Will they rebel, be their own gods, listen to the enemy? And he says, and you don't want to do that because if you do that, you will die. And as we learn as the story goes on, it's death at every level. It's not just physical. It's, it's spiritual. It's emotional. It's psychological. It is, uh, it's character, it's, uh, it's relational, it's social, it's cosmological, right? It's death at every level. And so as you know, that what do we do? We, re- we rebel as a race, right? We rebel against, and so sure enough, this death, and one of the ways you see it, first of all, is the change of their core character. And I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember what happened when God comes to the first man? Remember, uh, Adam in, in Hebrew means man. When he comes to uh, the first man, and he, he says to him, why did you eat the fruit? Do you remember what he said? Yeah, he said, it was the woman. And we've pretty much been saying that ever since, right? <laughs> it was an awesome first line. I mean, just... He said... Why did you do that? He said, it was the woman. But he didn't just say it was the woman. He said, it's the woman you gave me. (laughs) So what he's really saying is, why did I do that? It's her fault. Now that I think about it, it's really your fault. Now, here's the question I have for you. How long did it take him to think up that? It was like instant. God comes, why did you do? Boom. It was just the first thing that came out of his mouth. It was brilliant. And the woman, she was like, me too, right? Because what did she say when God said, what? Why did you do that? She said, the devil made me do it. It wasn't me, it was a serpent. What I want you to catch is that as fallen human beings, we're sort of hardwired as their spiritual descendants for rationalization, justification, excuses, and blame. It's what we do. And this is why when we come to Jesus, the first step of coming to Jesus and being restored to the people you're created to be, the first step is the confession of sin. 
The very first step of coming to Jesus is stepping into the light and being honest that we are wrong, that we've rebelled, that we've sinned, and we need to be forgiven. And the reason this is so important is not because God's trying to punish us or shame us, but because the reality is until we admit the truth about ourselves, even God can't help us. Like until we're willing to admit there's something wrong with us, we can't be healed. But here's what I want you to catch. This, this confession of sin, of embracing reality, the truth about ourselves, it's not just the first step of our spiritual life, it's the ongoing step. This is how we grow. That if we wanna grow, if we wanna be transformed, we have to learn to be radically honest with ourselves and with God and with some trusted others. And this is why I've often said here, you've heard me say this, you've been here a while, that the first step to growth and transformation is radical honesty. If you want to grow, if you want to be transformed, if you want to move in the future that God has for you, we have got to make a commitment to be radically honest about what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm doing, and why I'm doing it. Because without that, we are destined to live in self-deception and we will never be healed, we'll never be restored. And this is what Saul was not willing to do. He was not willing to come into the light and say, here's what I did. Contrast this with David, the second king of Israel. Contrast with who also did horrible things, committed adultery with one of his, his closest warrior friends, uh, his wife, and then on top of that, had him put to death. But when he was confronted, he responded by owning it and saying he sinned, and he was able to be forgiven and healed and not lose the kingdom, right? And so this is what I want you to catch is that as human we have this natural tendency to not only rebel against the creator, but to substitute partial obedience for real obedience, and then when we do it, to rationalize to ourselves and to others that we're not being disobedient, we are obeying the Lord. Now leads to number three, <clears throat> that sacrifice is no substitute. So again, we're doing a study of human nature today, right? And we've seen that we have this natural tendency to rebel or to substitute partial obedience for, for real obedience, and then to try to cover it up, rationalize it. But we also have this natural tendency not only to rationalize it, and justify it, but then try to substitute, kind of make up for our disobedience by substituting some sort of sacrifice to cover our sin. And so in Saul's case, this is very obvious. I mean, here's what happened. He was afraid of his men. And he knew what he was doing was violating the Lord's command. But what he said is, well, let's, let's take all the, all the plunder to Gilgal and we'll offer sacrifice of some of it to cover over and make up for our disobedience. Now, this is very tempting for us to do today as well. And we do it in different ways. Like we don't, uh, you know, we don't well, bring a lamb or a goat or something like that. At least I hope not. Uh, uh, we, we don't do that. But what we do is we often... Uh, when we know we're being disobedient in an area, and I want, I want you to catch this, this is very sly on our part. I mean, we're lying to ourselves the whole way. 
Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about the dimmer switch principle and you just kind of back away from the light until it gets, you, you, touch, you don't hear the voice anymore. This is how it works. That often as we back away, we begin to substitute something for our disobedience, substitute something uh, else. And so it goes like this. For some of you maybe coming from, uh, say, like a, a Catholic background, some of you will remember this. It's like, uh, go ahead and sin, but then we'll go to confession and we'll say like rosary or we'll say prayers to kind of make up for that. You see what's going on there? It's this, it's this principle of uh, I won't obey, but I'll make up for my lack of obedience with a sac- like a spiritual sacrifice. We do that in Protestant circles in all kinds of ways. We, we'll do things like, uh, you know, hey, well, I'm not really obeying, but I'll go to church more. Or I'll, I'll, I'll pray more. I'll read my Bible. God, I promise I'll be better in the future. Um, I, I will, uh, I'll, I'll serve in a ministry. I'll give more. I'll, I'll help the homeless. Like what we treat is kind of balance the scales. You know what I'm saying? It's like we're being disobedient here, but we'll do something good over here to kind of balance it out. But what we see in this passage is that sacrifice is never a substitute for obedience. And I want you to look at what, what, uh, what Samuel says. He says there in, in, in uh, uh, verse 22, He says, uh, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Now catch this. Did God require sacrifices of Israel? Yes, yes or no? Yes, he did, right? They were a good thing. But those sacrifices were always to be a sign of their obedience. It, it was never a substitute for obedience. It was a sign of their relationship, their love, their affection, their trust, their care, that they would offer sacrifice. So the sacrifice was never a substitute for obedience. It was a sign of obedience. And so he goes on and he says, so to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of ram. See, the, the reason God will never accept a substitute is that when God asks us to do something, he's got a reason. It's not arbitrary. He is for us, not against us. Remember Tim's message last week? He's for us, not against us. And when he asks us to do something, there is a reason. And that's why he'll never accept a substitute for obedience because it doesn't accomplish the goal that he is after in and through our lives. And so this leads to a key question. What I want to do is take these three principles now, put them together, and I want to ask you a key question to kind of land the plane for our lives. We've looked at these three powerful principles. Partial obedience is disobedience. We've seen that rationalization comes to us naturally. That is, if we want to grow, we have to fight that. We have to fight it by making a radical commitment to the truth. If we're going to move in the future especially when it comes to areas of obedience. Uh, We've seen that we can never substitute a sacrifice for obedience. But now it leads to a question. There in your note sheet, here's the question. The question I have for you is, how do you approach obedience? How do you approach in your life? We've seen today how Saul approaches it. He approaches it with the mindset, partial obedience is obedience. 
uh, rationalizing when he's not obeying and then substituting sacrifice for it. That's how, that's his approach. Can I tell you something? There are a lot of people, there are a lot of believers, people who follow Jesus, that this is their approach. They may not realize it, as we'll see in a second. But this is their approach. The question is, how do, you, how do you think about, how do you conceptualize, how do you approach obedience in your life? When the Lord asks you to do something, when the word is clear, when the Holy Spirit is clear with you, how do you approach that word in your life? We've seen how, how Saul does it. How do you do it in your life? And here's what I want to suggest. It is very easy to deceive ourselves in this area of obedience. Do you remember how Sam, what, what Saul said when he first saw Samuel, when Samuel was coming down the road, first season, remember what he said? He said, bless Yahweh, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Do you remember that? Bless the Lord, I mean, he's just, he's over the top, like, praise the Lord. It's so good to see you, Samuel. God has given us a tremendous victory. I have, I've listened. I have followed. I have carried out his instructions. Let's offer sacrifice and give thanks for this victory that God has given me. And you know what? I think at that moment in time, he meant it. He had so rationalized what he'd done that he was... Convinced. What he really expected was Samuel to say, well, praise Yahweh for his goodness to Israel. Let's offer a sacrifice. That's what he really expected. But the reality, of course, was that he was living in rebellion. He was arrogant that he had not carried out the Lord's instructions, and that he had rejected the word of the Lord. Isn't that crazy? Like, you could be so self-deceived. But I wonder about us sometimes, right? We, I wonder about us, and it's so easy, isn't it, to come to church and to praise the Lord. It's so good to be here and to worship the Lord and to raise our hands and to really, hey, we're in, wasn't that a great message? And we love being in our life group and we're serving in a ministry and we're giving here we're, and we're living out this life and we're seeing ourselves as living an obedient life. And there is, but the reality is there are certain areas of our life, and I'm not talking like we're looking for something deep within, hidden. I'm just saying certain areas of our life that we know the Lord has called us on, and, and we're, we're not giving obedience. We're giving partial, we're obeying in these areas of our life, but not in these areas. And we've just so rationalized it away. And I want to give you a few specific examples. I, I think this would just be, there's a million examples I could give. I just want to give you a few to, you know, you can kind of apply it to your own life, but let me just, so you can see what I'm talking about. Like, I want you to think what Jesus said about forgiveness. He said, hey, when you pray, you need to forgive men their sins against you because if you don't forgive others when they sin against you, um, then your Father in heaven won't forgive you. Now, is that clear or not? That's pretty clear. But have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you've said this, 
Like, I know what Jesus says about forgiveness, but, and in general, uh, I, I, I'm all for it. I, I forgive people. I'm a good guy, really, you know. In fact, I'm pretty quick, but there's this one person, there's never a chance. Uh, I mean, if you knew what they did to me, I, I'm sure God doesn't expect that. When Jesus said that, he wasn't expecting that. Uh, someone says, yeah, I, I know what the Bible says about sexual purity and how important it is. Yeah, I know, but you know, a lot of my friends don't take that seriously. I know a lot of Christians that don't take that seriously. And, uh, and you know, we, I, I know it's probably best, for, but we just can't afford to get married right now, so we're, we're just living together, but I, I think God understands. Um, hey, I know what God says about divorce, and I, frankly, I feel the same way. I hate it too, but you know, I, I'm just not happy and I just can't see going on the rest of my life not happy. And uh, I know God wouldn't want me happy, be unhappy. And so um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave her. I'm gonna leave him. Um, if it's wrong, I'll confess it later. Um, yeah, I know what God says about finances, but I, I, we just can't afford that, right? We can't really honor him with that. And I, I think that's for another time. We'll get back to that one. But I, I give in other ways. I give my time. And then we'll come to church and we'll raise our hands and we'll raise a hallelujah and we will uh, go to our life group and we'll do our thing. And all along, if someone were to ask us, we'd say, I've done what the Lord has called me to do. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And the reality is, we're living in a high-handed rebellion and arrogance. We have not carried out the Lord's instructions. And then he's like, How? I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm not really growing. Or I'm not really sure why I'm experiencing God's blessing. Or I'm praying and I just feel like God's not answering my prayers. Hey, well, is it possible that you've fallen into the trap of King Saul of believing that partial obedience is real obedience? when in reality, partial obedience is rebellion. Partial obedience is arrogance. Partial obedience is disobedience. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we kick off this series, we wanna come before you, it's sort of a holy convocation right now, I just lay our lives before you, God. And we, we want to be a people that are not living in the dark. We don't want to be living in self-deception. We want to live in the light, embrace the truth. And, and God, this has just come so naturally to us. It's so naturally as fallen people. It's so naturally to, to rebel or to try to substitute partial obedience for real obedience. And then to justify it or, or to try to substitute something else. And so, Father, we just pray that as we come into this, this moment of worship, we just invite your Holy Spirit to fill this room. And Father, we pray, as the song says, that if there's anything in our life where we've been deceiving ourselves, that those things would fall away. We would let that go. And we would surrender to you so we can move in the future that you have, that we can continue to live under your blessing like you wanted to bless Saul. Um, we, we would live under your blessing, growing, thriving, being changed, transforming, being used, because our whole heart is being surrendered to you. We pray you'd meet us now as we're bringing our tithes, our gifts, our offerings. We pray your Holy Spirit will be released in this place and you give us your grace to trust that you are truly good. And if there's anything you call this to obey or to let fall away, it's because that demolition will lead 
to reconstruction. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me?